Episode 51, Phil Bellinger. Welcome to the Oxidative Potential Podcast, where we discuss all things sports science and performance. I'm your host, Matthew DeRoche, and with me is my fellow co-host, Phil Batterson. Enjoy. So, Phil, it's really nice to have you on today, and I think in terms of, because we've had several different guests on where they're known for something on the show, whether they're mentioned about a certain topic, but your research has been mentioned probably by myself and others more than anyone on the show, because I think it's a very new and exciting aspect of research in terms of the technology that's being used and its implications for understanding more about the phenotypes and athletes and responses that we've been seeing, whether it's through experience or in the literature. But we're not going to dig into that right yet, but let's get an understanding of how did you get to the point of what you're doing today? What, what brought you to this point, trying to answer these questions? Yeah, well, I think I've always been interested in sport and high-performing athletes and how they can get to that level and whether they're just born with the skills, capabilities, the physiology to get there, but then also the training process as well. In regards to the training process, we often see two individuals do a similar training session or training program. Mm. Their responses might be wildly variable or very different to each other. So that's always intrigued me as well. So when you put those two things together, I'm sort of interested in how you can profile individuals and then use that information to hopefully make the training process a little bit more efficient and understand where some of that variability is, is coming from. Okay. Yeah. And what were the kind of initial, because I've gone through your research gate a few times. I know you initially started up investigating beta alanine that was your first kind of sloth of studies and then i've seen it start to trickle in into training response like overreaching is that how the question of fiber typology started to come into play for you is that where it really started yeah a little bit from that i did my phd in the area of beta alanine supplementation so that's a amino acid that typically you would consume over a chronic period, so over weeks, with the intention that you would increase levels of muscle carna, which is a muscle metabolite, and it's a pretty important buffer amongst other roles in the muscle, so that if you can increase your levels of carnosine, then you may be able to increase your buffer capacity and then your performance during high-intensity exercise, but then it might also allow you to train at a higher intensity during key sessions and thus improving performance more than when you weren't taking the supplement. Mm. And that journey sort of took me to taking a closer look at carnosine in the muscle and linking up with some other researchers around the world who had identified that this metabolite was actually twofold higher in your fast twitch or type 2 muscle fibres. And therefore, if you can find a way to measure carnosine in the muscle, then it could also be used as a proxy for estimating someone's muscle fiber type composition. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we refer to muscle fiber type composition, we're just referring to the ratio of your type one or your slow twitch fibers, and then also your type two or your fast twitch fibers. And as many of your listeners may be well aware, a large portion of your fiber type composition 
is heritable. So you can really thank your parents for how your muscles are made up to a large degree. Mm. And that may be a quite important factor for what sort of sports or events that you might be able to specialize in. Mm. But then also, interestingly, your responses to training. And that might sort of explain some of those variable training responses that we've already discussed briefly. So that sort of took me on a bit of a full-scale journey into the training studies and then identifying how important muscle fibre type composition could be with the major limitation is that historically to determine that information on someone, it requires a very invasive procedure or a muscle biopsy, which is Mm. essentially extracting some muscle fibres from the muscles in your leg or possibly even in your upper extremity as well. Mm. And uh, not too many top-level athletes or coaches would allow their athletes to undergo this procedure because it is quite invasive. And, yeah, you'll certainly get a sore leg or a sore arm where you extract those muscle fibres from, so it can be quite disruptive to training and it's, yeah, not a very enjoyable experience. So then we've sort of found ways to maybe estimate muscle typology and then the measurement of muscle carnosine is one of those techniques because carnosine can be measured non-invasively. It is quite technical, but with the right expertise, you can use magnetic resonance imaging and spectroscopy to measure muscle carnosine non-invasively. So then that allows the, I guess, profiling of athletes and estimating their muscle typology whilst not being disruptive to training, which is quite important. Mm. On that portion, what are, to give people an understanding of maybe why MRS, even outside of the invasive nature of biopsies, why MRS might be even more useful in some ways through, because from my understanding, especially with, this is something that I've come to to know with NEARS is the placement of your device really does affect a lot of different factors of what you're seeing whether that's adipose tissue thickness, whether that's the portion of the muscle of where fast and slow twitch starts to to change, right? And also depth of the muscle as well. So from my understanding, MRS holds maybe some benefit in terms of capturing a larger portion of the muscles. Is that correct? Compared to a biopsy where you're really just capturing fibers that, that you're taking out, which is a couple hundred. Yeah, exactly right. So if you take, say, one of the muscles in your cuff, the gastrocnemius or soleus muscle, Mm. and you take a muscle biopsy, you might be able to extract three to 400 fibres, and that might represent maybe 0.01% of the muscle or even less. Mm. When you apply spectroscopy or magnetic resonance spectroscopy or MRS, you essentially place a voxel or a 3d rectangle in the muscle and that's your region of interest Mm. and typically you can place quite a large voxel in the muscle where you can interrogate maybe five to maybe even ten percent of the muscle so you can target a much larger proportion of the muscle compared to the biopsy and even though those associated lab techniques where you analyze the fibers that are extracted from the biopsy it's considered the gold standard because you can directly measure the fiber type composition by staining these fibers but because you're only dealing with so few fibers there's some inherent variability with that technique and there's been a couple of studies recently that have somehow managed to recruit 
some participants where they've taken up to 10 biopsies across the length of the muscle and they've tried to capture that level of variability that you see between muscle biopsies and particularly when you're dealing with so few fibers on average you might identify the fiber type composition of an individual to be maybe 55 percent of type 2 fibers yet mm. when you look at the variability between those biopsy sites one biopsy might identify someone as having maybe 35 to 40 percent of type 2 fibers yet when you look at one of the other biopsy sites their type 2 fiber composition might be as high as 80 or 85 percent which is mm. obviously a huge variation between sites yeah. so even though it is the gold standard there is a big limitation with the repeatability of that technique mm. and we think some of that repeatability can be largely improved with our estimation of muscle fiber type composition through the measurement of muscle carnosine so we think we can improve the repeatability of the technique even though we are indirectly measuring muscle type fiber type composition so with the advancement in technology we always go through the process of commercialization to some degree, improvement of the application of, of these technologies. From my understanding, there is more use of these in various professional sports and whatnot. How long do you think it's going to be before these are truly applicable to essentially most pro sports, most elite athletes, whether it's in Olympic centers, not in Olympic centers, but accessible to Olympic centers? How far off in the future do you see that lining up? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're too far off. The interest in trying to individualise training and understand why we have these variable responses has taken so much interest of recent times. And mm. I think sports are becoming, the top-level coaches are becoming much more intrigued on how they can apply science and mm. in particular non-invasive technology. And I know certainly our key collaborator really the pioneer behind this technique is a belgian scientist professor vim derave and he's been applying this technique in athletes since 2012 2013 and i certainly think in the next 10 years there's going to be possibly some commercialization around that but certainly much more accessibility to the technique from athletes around the world where they may be able to go down to their local radiology facility scan some of their muscles and get this information turned around really quickly so that their coach can incorporate this information to individualize their training for sure. So I don't think it's too far off. But I'm sure after people start catching on to this, will definitely like when, whenever you see some of the research and you see some of its applications, it really starts to stand out to you. How integral this is, it's funny because I've gone through several processes of whether it was VLA max or different types of power curves and really getting down to a lot of times, what are we trying to measure here? And a lot of times you have to really think about what are we trying to measure? Because if we're trying to measure change, what does the change mean? And I realize with a lot of things, realistically, what we're looking for is fiber type, because that's the most sure way to understand there's a positive change in, in, in a lot of ways that we're looking for. So it's funny that over the years and some of the things that I've been implemented, I've realized like, oh yeah, Essentially, what I'm trying to do here is measure fiber type. So maybe try and use things that are closely related to that in the research. One thing I'm interested to hear your thoughts on before we get into your research is 
because of that and my thoughts on that over the years, I, I know a lot of the things haven't always worked out the way that I've thought in terms of looking at power curves and seeing how they change from training intervention to training intervention and individual to individual, because there's so many factors of familiarization to the test. And there's so many factors of the physiology that can mask different things that we're seeing. I know there's been some research with Mitchell and, uh, and colleagues anyways, on critical power, essentially, and correlation to capillarization to type one fibers and also type one fibers proper. What are your thoughts on some of the things out there that have been used? What are the things to look out for, pay attention to? What might be applicable? Why it might not be applicable? How do you view some of these other tests as proxies for type of fibers? Yeah, so there's plenty of physical or performance tests that coaches might use in the field to, in the field to, I guess, estimate or get a feel for the muscle fiber type composition of their athletes. So you might get track or team sport coaches that might use peak sprinting speed or cycling coaches might use peak power during a, an all out sprinting test to try and estimate muscle fiber typology. But mm -hmm. I guess the main limitation with using performance or physical tests to estimate muscle fiber typology is the fact that performance is multifactorial and these performance values are very malleable to training and also maturation as well. So I guess using any type of performance test to estimate muscle typology when the performance test itself is going to be very responsive to training and fatigue is a little bit problematic. And you mentioned before sort of using the critical power W prime model to estimate typology and certainly critical power in cycling seems to relate to the proportion of type one fibers, but also how many capillaries surround those fibers. So it makes sense mm. from a physiological characteristic as well. However, we also know that critical power is very malleable to training. So if mm. you go and do a large endurance training block, then critical power would also increase as well. And then alongside of that, you would likely get angiogenesis so more capillaries wrapping around those fibers too so the physiological characteristics change yet if we think about muscle fiber type composition at least in the short to moderate term mm. those very extreme changes don't seem to happen of course we can get some changes within those subtypes of fibers so maybe those very explosive type 2x fibers may sort of transition more towards the type 2a side or you've got those intermediate hybrid fibers but at least those very extreme changes in fiber type composition don't seem to alter, at least in the short to moderate term. So although we can maybe get a bit of an estimate from some of these performance and physical tests that might reflect the muscle fiber type composition of athletes, I think just due to the fact that performance in these tests can change so dramatically with training mm -hmm. that you'll only ever see sort of small to moderate associations with fiber type, which makes sense. Also from the perspective that performance is multifactorial. So if we're thinking about peak sprint power on the bike or peak sprinting speed when we're running all out, fiber typology will certainly play a role in that performance, but as does muscle volume, as does muscle architecture, and then also just the skill of being able to sprint really fast or also produce a lot of power on the bike. So there's so many different factors that go into those performance tests that maybe they do reflect muscle fiber type composition to a degree, but certainly not with any precision because they're so malleable to training and so many other factors that underpin performance. Yeah, that was a 
good summarization on essentially an approach to take when looking at some of these things and trying to extrapolate physiology, because it's no different than any of these physiological tests, whether it's VO2, VO2 max, lactate curves, various things with NEARS, you can run into trouble sometimes when trying to <laughs> correlate one thing too many. So let's jump into the research on middle distance running. So you had a fairly good group of middle distance runners. I think it was 24, I believe, 16 male, eight female. And, you know, what I found very interesting about this whole piece of research was it's essentially something that I don't know has ever been put forward in, in terms of overreaching. Like we've always put forth where does overreaching sit? But I don't think I've ever heard anyone actually come to the question of, does overreaching, is that something that's individual between the phenotype? And it's funny because this is something I've noticed over the years in, in performance testing, essentially. You have individuals that are more of the fast twitch phenotype versus the aerobic phenotype. And if you're programming, for example, let's say high intensity intervals or sprints, using auto-regulatory methods, whether it's sprint drop-off, if you're using drop-off speed of, let's just say 4% for an aerobic athlete, you may run into problems fairly quickly, right? And that athlete definitely can overcook fairly quick versus the more fast switch phenotype. That started to wrap my head around, oh, okay, there's an individual response here to, to some of the interventions. And then what about what we're seeing in terms of recovery? And I said, yeah, okay, there seems to be something going on there with recovery as well, but I've never heard anyone put forth anything talking about overreaching. So how did this come along? And let's dig into this whole piece that's pretty seminal, I think. Yeah, I think how I sort of got into that space was I read all these papers in this sort of around the 2007 period and over the next few years and I was looking at this overreaching research and I just found it to be a really interesting concept and essentially what overreaching is referring to is you might, as a coach, prescribe a overload training block of maybe three to four weeks where you would either increase the training volume or possibly increase the training intensity of key sessions and athletes would somewhat fall in a bit of a hole and they'd be getting fatigued from training but they just try and push through the training block and if you were to measure performance straight after that overload training block on average you would see a decrease in performance i mean the athletes are feeling fatigued and then hopefully after a taper period that might last anywhere between seven and 10 days, you might see a super compensation in performance. So when you remove that fatigue, the athletes have a number of key physiological adaptations from that harder block of training. And then when they're feeling fresh, you see that performance overshoot and that's really what the training is all about. However, when you have a look at the individual data, you see that after an overload training block, some athletes are just able to maintain their performance. Other athletes see a big drop off in performance and they're feeling really tired and fatigued. And then other athletes may even improve their performance after a training block if they can tolerate that increase in training volume or intensity. And then after a taper, some of the athletes may just return back to baseline. Other athletes that were feeling really fatigued might have that performance overshoot. And then other athletes that saw the improvement in performance may even see a further increase in performance. So mm. you've just got this wildly variable response to a similar training intervention that's all mm. made relative to each athlete. So 
just looking at some of this research over that period, some was done by some other Australian researchers, Aaron Coots, and, and there's a French group that's done a lot of this work as well. And I thought, how can we try and better understand some of that variability? So we performed a study in middle distance runners. And as you mentioned before, we had 24 middle distance runners. You need a lot of athletes to perform studies like this to try and understand some of that variability. And what we did was we had a three-week, what we consider a control training block, where the athletes just continued their normal training. And we measured their performance before and after this block. And then we then prescribed a three-week overload training period that was made relative to each individual's control training block. Mm. And then following that, they also did a one-week taper. And what we wanted to look at was the variability in their performance responses, particularly after that overload training period and then also after the taper. And we monitored every single training session. So I think all up, I probably looked at over 750 training sessions to try and understand how these athletes were training. Could we pick up any of these fatigue responses in their training sessions? And we brought them into the lab before and after each one of those training blocks as well. And we looked at their body composition. We measured their resting metabolic rate soon after they woke up on one of the mornings to try and see if we could detect anything that was happening there. And took some blood samples and obviously looked at their performance as well. And we found that on average, the performance of those 24 middle distance runners decreased after that overload training period. And then on average, their performance increased after the taper. But when you have a look at the individual performance responses, it was quite variable. So some athletes could tolerate the increase in training volume. Other athletes were very fatigued when they came into the lab. And then similarly, after that taper period, we also saw on average a performance improvement, but at the individual level, it was quite variable. So then we couldn't really pick up too much in our blood samples that sort of reflected the training block and sort of changed in concert with the change in performance. And the athletes dropped a little bit of body fat, obviously after the increase in training volume, but we didn't really pick up any systemic changes in their resting metabolic rate. And mm. we applied our non-invasive method of muscle fiber type composition identification. And interestingly, we found that the variability following that increase in training volume, at least some of that variability could be explained by variation in the muscle typology of those athletes. So mm. runners with a greater estimated proportion of type one or slow twitch fibers were better able to maintain their performance in response to that increase in training volume. Mm. But also interestingly, subsequent to that, they were also able to achieve a greater performance supercompensation after the taper period. So to be able to explain some of the variability in response to training, we thought was quite remarkable because that mm. hadn't really been shown before. But now that's starting to agree with a lot more research that's coming out that's actually taken some muscle biopsies and looked at very fibre-type specific adaptations to training and also in agreement with some of the other research in overreaching. So, yeah, we just found that to be a really interesting finding. The reason that we chose to study the middle-distance runners is that typical to most middle-distance disciplines, middle-distance athletes typically have a wide range in their physiological profiles. So mm -hmm. you can excel in middle-distance events such as rowing and and track endurance cycling 
with quite different physiological profiles. You can often see those very big engine sort of endurance type athletes, but also at the other end of the spectrum, to a degree, you've got athletes that have better capabilities to produce power and they're a little bit more explosive, mm. yet they can both have exceptional performances in those middle distance events. So we wanted to try and harness some of that variability. And, yeah, we're really glad that we sort of focused on that type of athlete cohort for that study. Yeah, I think the implications of this piece of research just by itself has opened up the doors for so many questions about what we've seen in research in the past and what we've seen in experience in coaching. What are some other applications because when we're looking at overreaching, especially acutely over this three-week period, where do you think that holds in terms of day-to-day -day training? So essentially different types of intensities, because this is something that's been put forth recently with polarized training versus pyramidal or threshold training. Do you think there's something there? Because I've always found that inherently I do have some bias and I do think this is hugely dependent on genetics hugely dependent on sport and the event itself, but also on fiber typology. Do you feel there may be something there in terms of fusion of training and response that we're seeing, especially with the typology? Yeah, the training intensity distribution and what might be optimal for an athlete is a bit of a tough one to really nail down on. I think for me, training intensity distribution is really sort of the end product, the sort of macro periodization. I think with the prescription of training for athletes, you focus on the micro periodization, mm. sort of session to session, how you distribute those sessions across a week, what's the overall training volume of that week. And then I think training intensity distribution is really the product of that. So I think trying to choose an athlete and say, all right, I'm going to apply a pyramidal or a polarized distribution for that athlete might be the wrong way to go about it. I think mm -hmm. you start off at the micro level and mm -hmm. then the training intensity distribution sort of takes care of itself once you've done the micro periodization. Mm -hmm. But I think if you do look at that micro level and it's and you're sort of thinking about, okay, how is this athlete going to respond to a session that's predominantly performed in the moderate, heavy or severe domain? We know a little bit about how fiber typology may play a bit of a role in that. So if we think about type two or fast twitch fiber recruitment as you progress through those intensity domains up to the severe domain we would typically have a much larger recruitment or a recruitment of more type two fibers mm -hmm. but then also as we progress through in duration in each of those intensity domains we also see an increase in type two fiber recruitment so in the moderate domain or very low intensity exercise you would typically recruit more type one fibers initially but if you were to go out for a two or three hour moderate intensity continuous training ride or run, then maybe towards the back end of that run, you do recruit more of those type two fibers as well. So fiber recruitment is both intensity, but also duration dependent as well. But I think if we were to make some recommendations on specific training prescription around muscle typology, then I think at least based on some of our work that we just spoke about previously, maybe those sort of overload training periods where we increase training volume substantially, that might not be optimal for athletes with more type 2 fibres. 
but possibly a more gradual increase in, in, in training volume might be best for those athletes, but certainly those overload training periods where we increase volume quite substantially might not be optimal. Mm-hmm. And I think based on some of the work from our colleagues over in Belgium, they've done some acute training studies. So they've selectively recruited athletes with more type 2 fibres and other group of athletes with more type Mm. 1 fibres. And that's a really interesting study because it sort of builds on our work over the chronic training periods where Mm. they got these two polarised groups of athletes. They performed a sprint cycling session in the morning, were recreationally trained, so they weren't specifically trained individuals but certainly active and healthy. And the session was just three all-out 30-second wingate sprints. Mm. So the intensity was maximal and all out. They can certainly induce quite a large amount of fatigue, but the volume wasn't very high. Then for the next five hours, they uh, tracked the recovery of these athletes through to the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did this a number of different ways, but one of the main ways was just through a maximal voluntary contraction of their knee extensors, so just kicking their leg out. And within 20 minutes, the slow twitch or athletes with more type one fibers, they had fully recovered back to baseline. Mm. Yet that group of very explosive athletes and and athletes with a greater proportion type two fibers still hadn't fully recovered after the five hour period. So I think that's got really key implications for how you might distribute the key quality training sessions across a week. So now we've suddenly got two key components of prescription advice that we can offer individuals. And then I think thirdly, we can alter the content of key quality training sessions for athletes. So if we take a standard session for most sort of middle or long distance runners, and it might be six to eight, one kilometre reps, one minute recovery, everyone in the group would perform that session. But what we typically see is that the athletes that are more sort of explosive or more type 2 fibres, their performance might drop off across those reps. Mm. So what you could do with those athletes is either increase the interset recovery periods, maybe up to two minutes, or possibly even slightly reduce the volume of each repetition. So it might be repeat 800-metre efforts. So the session is still certainly endurance-focused, but just by these slight manipulations in the specific prescription, we might be able to get a more favourable response from that particular session. So I think they're probably the three key pieces of training prescription advice we can deliver at the moment. But certainly we need to do more applied research. It's just that these training studies are so difficult to do. And I certainly recall back to when we were doing our sort of seven-week training period. I was in the lab most mornings, 4.30, waking up these athletes, getting them to do their resting metabolic rate test. And then it was a big production line. Obviously, I had a, a massive team at the university helping me out, which was great. But I think if we want to do very high-quality training intervention studies, they require, yeah, lots of resources. But yeah, we're certainly interested in continuing some of that research and certainly focusing on some of those things that I've just spoken about. So we're focused on manipulating training volume. And then I guess our next study would be seeing whether we can maybe reduce the volume, but then if we can really focus on some of the key training sessions of these middle distance athletes, then maybe we can maximize the performance responses in those speed power profiled athletes as well. Yeah, because 
I the age old question is, especially when we're talking about phenotypes, because phenotypes have been a thing for a while is how do you go about with the key sessions? Like I know with Gareth Sanford's work with the ASR, that's something that's been put forth is how do you train the terrestrial versus the aerial runner and what key sessions are key for kind of moving those things forward. But even when you look at some of those, and this is where something I'm getting at with is even when you profile individuals, like you were talking earlier, whether it's critical power, W prime or ASR, you still do see variability, I think, and probably if I had to guess much more variability than you would be compared to actual fiber type proper. So this, it seems like it's, it really is the next step in understanding individuality, along with some of the genetic research as well, I believe. I think that definitely holds a key to play with some of the research I've seen come forth with that. So Essentially, when we're talking about type 2A kind of athletes, type 1, where does that, what does that look like in terms of, actually, this is where I wanted to go. This is something I was thinking about earlier, and I, I forgot to bring this up, but a new thing that's been circling around is the talk around durability, fatigue resistance, essentially, in endurance sport. I had a conversation with James Sprague, who just released his paper there recently, and one of the questions, and Ed, actually, Ed Monder as well, one of the things that, that I brought up to them was how much of durability do we see? Because we're trying to pinpoint these physiological markers, try to uh, equate how do these things work out in equation to result in durability. That's, and also looking at how does performance change over time? But how much of durability in your estimation do you think could be explained by fiber typology? Yeah, I think possibly a portion of that for sure. I think durability and where you sit on that spectrum, so how long can you maintain given performance for, is certainly trainable as well. We've conducted some work where we've looked at, okay, what are the associations between muscle typology and other physiological characteristics? And we did a lot of that work in the middle distance runners as well. Mm. And we saw a sort of moderate to strong association between their running economy, so their energy cost of running, and their muscle typology. So as you might expect, more type 1 or slow-twitch fibres and those athletes are more economical. So mm-hmm. they expend less energy to run at a given running speed relative to their own threshold. So I think that has a major role in durability. I think we often think of durability as how well can you maintain your physiology, so heart rate, energy cost in response to exercise. But I think we need to, and I know that Ed's sort of clearly outlined this in his research, we need to dissociate durability from looking at the ratio between physiology and external work rate because as you exercise, you typically get hotter, your heart rate increases because you've got to pump more blood out to the periphery to try and maintain core temperature. So I think if we remove that sort of cardiac drift from durability and it becomes more about maintaining performance over a long period of time, I think muscle typology would logically be related to that. It's interesting because when you relate durability to sports and you might think of what's a classic endurance sport or road cycling, there's road cycling events that are quite mountainous. I think Mm -hmm. durability in those events is really key. But then we've also got to consider other events, so long flat stages where 
you might have your more explosive endurance riders being protected by the team. And then it's really up to them to produce these very short, punchy efforts mm. after riding for three to four hours. So that sort of repeatability of sprint performance is also quite important because I don't think athletes with a really high proportion of type one fibers would be or have the optimal profile for those sorts of events. Whereas mm. durability, I think purely just based on maintaining a sort of moderate intensity would certainly be related to the proportion of type one fibers for sure. So that mm. might be the next study. Yeah. Yeah. Fair, that I think that would be on everyone's wish list that's been keen into this stuff lately yeah i mean it's uh, it's we've often thought about endurance performance as being determined solely from aerobic power so vo2 mm. max the percentage of it you can maintain so essentially your critical speed or critical power and then also your exercise economy or efficiency mm. and then yeah the durability seems to be one of those missing links and then certainly in other endurance events there may also be an important role of your oxygen uptake kinetics and possibly even an anaerobic component as well. But yeah, yeah I think it's a great concept durability. And yeah, I think on that last note, we've sort of done some work in characterizing the muscle typology of professional cyclists. And we've looked at road cyclists, but also the road cyclists that excel in different types of road races. And we found that the road sprinters was sort of that mixed profile so enough mm. fast fibers to produce a lot of power yeah. but then also enough type one fibers to be able to sustain some of those efforts over long rides and then what we found from those climber types was that they were sitting right at that slow twitch end of the spectrum and then you would suspect that those types of athletes as well would certainly have the best level of durability and i think if we can come up with some type of ideal lab test to measure durability that would be great but mm. yeah it might be difficult to convince athletes to come in for some of those tests because they might be riding on a station for quite some time yeah 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 some of these things there's so many hard cells unfortunately in, in exercise <laughs> physiology one one interesting place of sport that is definitely on the frontier. It's probably one of one of the last frontiers. I consider ultra ultra distance is one of the last frontiers of trying to wrap our heads around these determinants. But one sport that is up and coming, and I think whether it's it it others shoot like high rocks and these things, but I think CrossFit holds a very interesting problem for exercise physiology. And that's one thing I've always tried to wrap my head around because we see some of these individuals coming into the CrossFit sport from various backgrounds, whether it's team sports, baseball, football, or gymnastics, Olympic weightlifting recently, but also understanding what are we seeing in the top tiers? Because when we look at the performance metrics of some of these guys, there is vastly different demographics in terms of performance characteristics. And to me, like uh, recently, uh, I think it was in 2021, maybe where Hunter McIntyre was like a wild card pick that really drew my attention because someone that has more of it, I mean, yes, he's a hybrid athlete, but someone that has more of this endurance profile coming into the sport, what are the capabilities? But I've always had a, a long thought here and there about what is the fiber makeup of these individuals, similar to what we would see in hybrid athletes, military special operations, these people that have to excel in multiple disciplines and modalities. But yeah, there's so much out there for fiber tip, I think. One one thing 
I would be interested to to move into here is what is because we we touched on this earlier, essentially when you're talking about the research with your colleagues there. So when we're talking about spending time in this exercise domain for severe, let's just actually talk about severe domain, because a lot of the adaptations that we're looking for, whether it's VO2 max or even threshold work when we're getting down into the heavy domain, this is something that's very interesting to think of the implications of inflammation markers, muscle damage, all these things, how they're going to affect the athlete and knowing, trying to word this right, knowing that we're going to see difference differences in recovery time and response time to some of these things. Do you think there's an interplay there of why we see certain athletes with these different profiles and fiber typology display different physiological characteristics? Because essentially their physiology is almost capturing them in a way to train in a certain way. They've had to, trial and error has limited them to essentially training in an individual way for them that works where they're not getting sick. They're not becoming immunosuppressed. They're not getting overtrained where essentially their, their physiology represents their fiber typology. Is that something that you think makes sense in some way, or do you think that's just kind of maybe a little no, bit it's off? A, it's a great question. So if I understand it correctly, it's do we self-regulate our training based on our heritable traits to perform sessions that we feel more comfortable. That's interesting. It's And I think sometimes we see these fiber types as being very distinct, but we sort of need to view uh, these different fibers sitting along a spectrum. Mm. And similar to the exercise intensity domains, we often see thresholds, these magical borders, mm. but it's really a phase transition in our physiological responses. Mm. And that's similar to our fiber types. We often see type one and type two as being very distinct. And of course, to a degree they are. Mm. But if we take one of those subtypes of our type two fibers, our type two A fibers, we typically refer to those as our intermediate fibers Mm. because they share characteristics of type one fibers. They can be highly oxidative, but they also share characteristics of our extreme type two X fibers. They can Mm. contract really quickly. They can produce a lot more power therefore. So I think it's also worth noting that type 2A fibres can reach the same level of oxidative capacity as mm-hmm. our type 1 fibres, yeah. which means that they can essentially produce aerobic energy just as well as our type 1 fibres. And we know that from some really exquisite studies that have been done up in Scandinavia where they've studied the muscles of cross-country ski, mm-hmm. some of the best endurance athletes in the world. Where type 1 and type 2A fibres do differ is that we think type 1 fibres might be a little bit more efficient. So to produce Mm. a given amount of energy or ATP, they essentially consume less energy or use less oxygen to do that. And that might be related to some of these processes in the cell related to the contraction without getting too technical. Mm. So I think that's why we do see sort of this different response in these different intensity domains such that if you were to perform exercise in the moderate intensity domain you probably wouldn't see too much of an association with the physiological responses and someone's muscle fiber type it's because they're nearly exclusively recruiting type 1 fibers so Mm -hmm. even if you had a lot of type 2 fibers they may not be recruited 
Mm. where you might see an association between the physiological responses in these different intensity domains and fibre type is maybe in the heavy and certainly in the severe intensity domain where both type 1 and type 2 fibres would be recruited. So Mm. the slope of that oxygen uptake or energy and work rate relationship would probably significantly correlate with the proportion of of type 1 fibres purely based on the intensity domain that you're in. So then I don't think we should necessarily shy away from specific exercise prescription based on someone's muscle typology in terms of the domains because we need athletes that can work across these different domains. There's not too many sports or events that are performed exclusively in one domain, so a training shouldn't shy away from that. But, yeah, getting back to your question, I'm not sure I can give that a definitive answer of whether individuals do self-regulate, but I think there's certainly a degree of that, mm. and maybe that can create more of a polarised response because we obviously we adapt and we get better at doing things specifically so if Mm. we solely perform training in a given intensity domain then our bodies are going to adapt and we're going to have very specific physiological responses to Mm. those types of sessions but certainly as we were talking about before some of the other training characteristics can be manipulated so the amount of work that an individual does in a given domain or the amount of efforts they do at a particular intensity can be manipulated but certainly we need to be very flexible metabolically and the only way to do that is to perform different types of training sessions across those intensity domains that was a good elaboration on fiber type and oxidative capacity i know we've talked about stefan van Ward's review on muscle fiber determinants which i think was super illuminating seeing the oxidative capacity and also mitochondrial content of type 2 a fibers compared to type one and having the ability to mirror that of what we've seen in type one. And that really changed a lot of things in my head in terms of thinking about long-term limitations for athletes wanting to maybe veer outside of what would be their kind of typical events or typical kind of predisposition for competition and really did open my eyes up to, to see the variance that can be made with just the fiber itself. What are some of the things that you're interested to, because we, we, we talked about durability as being one of the things that you're interested in seeing with fiber typology in the future. What are some of the other things that it, it doesn't even have to be surrounding fiber typology, but it, it can, what are some of the things that you're interested in seeing in the future come forth and whether you're interested in researching it yourself or research, seeing other researchers continue in, in their past? Yeah. If you could talk about that, maybe. Yeah, well, I'll sort of mention a couple of projects that we've either got ongoing at the moment or that we plan to do in the future. And as we mentioned before, I think continuing on with trying to better understand individual responses to training. But then once we've understood those, can we take that information and then prescribe individualised training programs to maximise the response in performance? Mm. So we'd like to continue on in that area. We'd also like to apply our measurements of muscle typology and continue to do that in other areas as well. So one area that we think could have major application is in talent identification. Those studies are very difficult to perform where we Mm. might measure a given characteristic in young boys and girls. And then we need a really large cohort to then follow those individuals to see if we can predict 
which of those will go on to reach success at senior level. But we've certainly got some projects that um, will be starting soon in that space. And another area that we've done a bit of work in is looking at ding and performance, particularly in, in middle distance disciplines. We often see very polarised tactics and pacing approaches at the top level. And a lot of that is seen in those middle distance events. So for any middle distance running fans, you would have noticed some very polarised racing strategies in both the 8 and 1500 metre events. If you compare the last two major Olympic finals, so both Rio and Tokyo, we saw very different pacing and tactics in those gold medal winning performances. At Tokyo, for example, Jakob Ingebrigtsen won in nearly a world record time, yet Five years earlier in Rio, Matt Centrovitz won the 1500 final, and that was he won that race in about 22 to 23 seconds slower than Ingebrigtsen's time. So whether mm. he chose some racing tactics that maybe better suited his physiology, we've done a couple of experimental studies in in that space, and also in swimming as well, the 200 meter freestyle event, mm. and a lot of that work has demonstrated that muscle typology in addition to other physiological characteristics can be utilized to better inform racing strategies and pacing to optimize performance so we'd like to continue some work in that space as well mm. and we've also gotten into the area of team sports so we've done some work in Australian football so I'm not sure if you'd be familiar with that code because it is predominantly played in Australia but commonly referred to as AFL or the Australian Football League and it's a very hybrid contact team sport and we've sort of tried to characterize some of those athletes based on their muscle typology where we see a huge variability mm. but the majority of those athletes have more of a endurance or slow twitch profile but that variability is related to their match running performance as well and interestingly we didn't find any characteristic muscle typology for specific positions and that's in agreement with some of the work that we've done in European football or soccer, where there doesn't seem to be a muscle typology that matches a specific position, yet muscle typology relates to output, running output during matches. And then if you think about team sport conditioning, and it sort of makes sense to a degree, but most coaches would prescribe workouts for position-specific groups yet there's no position-specific muscle typology. So maybe we need to flip team sport conditioning on its head and instead of grouping athletes into forwards, backs or midfielders, their conditioning may or maybe should be specific to their muscle typology as well. And then we also don't think that muscle typology is the only thing that matters. So lots of our studies that we perform, we look at other muscle characteristics as well. So in addition to muscle typology, muscle volume and muscle architecture is also important. So we've got a project in rowing coming up as well, mainly for the fact that rowers can present with very different physiological and anthropometric profiles. So we're trying to better understand some of the muscular determinants of rowing performance and how that might relate to pacing and then following on from that, maybe some individualised training too. So, yeah, lots going on from us across those areas and, yeah, certainly interested in many other researchers that are doing some pretty cool stuff in that space as well. Yeah, going through your research, gate, there's just so much there that's super fascinating and it's going to be super interesting to see further investigation on some of these things. Like I came across the, I believe it was force profiling and harnessing aggregate Z-scores. That was super enlightening to me because whether it's some of these performance metrics 
or even force velocity profiling itself. There's been some interesting research over the years and really trying to understand why does this not play out like we think it should, training the force velocity profile essentially sometimes. But I, th I think muscle typologies is going to be such a huge factor when we're talking about some of these uh, training interventions that we see for even some of these power sports. It's going to be very interesting to see the future on that as well. Yeah, so... If, if you think about, you know, where you're at now and how far you've made it in the last 10 years, what do you see in the next 10 years? What do you, where do you see things moving and shifting? Because I know before we got on the call, you talked about the Olympics coming back into your region. So do you see a, a lot of innovation, a lot of things moving forward with the investment there? What do you see 10 years from now? What do you, what are you looking at in terms of a sport institute in Australia? Yeah, so in Australia, we've got a very healthy relationship with sport and it's a very active nation, which is good. I'm based on the Gold Coast at Griffith University, which is on the east coast of Australia. And fortunately, we've been announced as the host of the Olympics in 2032. So that's going to be predominantly based in Brisbane, which is an hour drive north, but also some events here on the Gold Coast and up on the Sunshine Coast as well. Mm -hmm. And with that, the Australian government is going to put a lot more money into top-level sport, but also at the grassroots too, so for participation, which I think is really important. And in Australia, we have the overarching Australian Institute of Sport, which amongst many roles support Australian athletes. And we also have more of a decentralised approach as well, where each state of Australia has their own sports institute who service predominantly Olympic athletes. And in particular in Queensland, the local government has also provided a lot more funding to the Queensland Academy of Sport who have yeah, a really nice profile. And with that comes a lot more positions and then also a lot more support for the sports. And we do a lot of our research in collaboration with the Queensland Academy of Sport. They've got a really nice, clear sort of pathway of linking with universities where academics have their own skill set and are interested in improving the performance or health of athletes. So I think that collaboration between either the Queensland Academy of Sport, for example, the sports themselves and the universities can be a really good, strong relationship for practically applied research mm. that can hopefully help to improve the performance of athletes. And we do a lot of our research in collaboration with the coaches of these sports, with the performance scientists or physiologists working with these sports. So I think mm -hmm. those sorts of relationships will continue to flourish in the future of the next 10 years. And I think those relationships can use the expertise of one another to work towards that common goal. I mean, the reason I got into research is that I'm interested in why athletes can produce so much power or why they can run so fast. And then an extension of that is finding better ways to do that. So yeah, that's pretty much what motivates me and the way that it's set up here in Southeast Queensland and in Australia more broadly, I think we're in a really good position to continue that. Yes, it will, it will be interesting to see because anytime you see places, I remember when I initially got into exercise physiology coming across Australia and everyone, this is the place to be. This is the place to be. It'll be interesting to see the drive in, in the whole scene there. So really appreciate you coming on today. If people want to find how to get a hold of you in terms of social media, see the stuff that you're posting, they can do so, I'm guessing, on Twitter, right? 
Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet as much as others. I'm sort of, I just like to see the other work that people are putting out there, but certainly I'll retweet some other studies that I find really interesting. And of course, you sort of promote your own work on there as well. So Twitter's not a bad spot to find me. And then also, as you mentioned a few times, my research gate has a link to all of our published work. So maybe that's a good spot as well. And then you can also find me on email at Griffith University. So if you're interested to have a bit of a chat, I'm also keen to discuss anything sports performance. So yeah, feel free to reach out as well. Awesome. So I'll leave that stuff in the show notes for you folks. And yeah, thanks to Phil for coming on. Catch you later.